Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. We have what I think is a jam-packed and really cool show for you this week. So I know everybody says that. I know everybody says that, but this time it's really true. Have I ever lied to you before? Deadpool, Deadpool, Deadpool. That's all anybody's saying to me this week. So I thought that I would go back a little ways, root through the archives at the House of Kraus and find an interesting Ryan Reynolds interview to share with you. Now, a number of years ago, probably about five years ago, five or six years ago now, he made a movie called Buried. Now, this was a break from some of the superhero kind of movies that he had been making, like The Green Lantern. It was a break from the rom-coms that he had made, like The Proposal. This was a much different art house thriller that saw him inside a box completely encased in a coffin for the entire 90 minute running time. And I don't mean that he was in the box the whole time and there was action other places. No, the whole action took place within a box that was about six feet long, maybe two and a half feet high and three or four feet across. It's an intense movie. And as I say in this interview to him, a movie that I wasn't sure I was gonna be able to sit all the way through. But I did, and I'm glad I did. I think it's probably his best work, probably also his least seen work. The movie's called Buried. Uh, we'll talk to Ryan Reynolds about that in a second. First up, though, I want to introduce you to a guy called Paul Dalio. Paul Dalio is the director of a movie called Touched with Fire, starring Luke Kirby and Katie Holmes as two bipolar poets who try and form a relationship in and out of an institution that they have been uh, treated in. This is a movie that is stingingly realistic. This is a movie that is unflinching in its portrayal of bipolar. And it's because Paul Dalio spent four years uh, going through what he calls the ecstasy and agony of a bipolar disorder. It's an incredible story. I would call this an interview, except that I asked one question off the top, and Paul spoke for about 24 minutes, but it's 24 minutes unlike anything that you've ever heard before, I don't think. It is such a vivid description of the four years leading up to him going to film school, meeting Spike Lee, have Spike Lee mentoring him, and then eventually taking the baby steps and then longer strides towards getting touched with fire made. It's an incredible story. So I want you to stick around for that. First up though, Deadpool, Deadpool, Deadpool. We're gonna talk with Ryan Reynolds, but we're not gonna talk about Deadpool. You've heard enough about that already. Go back and see if you can find on Netflix or DVD or however it is that you watch movies, see if you can find it buried. First up, though, listen to my conversation with Ryan Reynolds about the film. Tell me what it was uh, about this script when it came across your desk, because you must have known it was going to be kind of unpleasant <laughs> to, yeah, to make this movie. I so did. what was it that went, you know what, i got to do this? Well, for starters, I don't have a desk. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I got the script through the, through the usual channels. I knew it was, it was something, um, I was told it was, it was something... Hitchcockian, and I and I was I wasn't thinking uh, rope or lifeboat. I was thinking more in the vertigo kind of world. I mean, something a little bit more like a suspense thriller that's a little more laconic. And um, and I got this script, and it was about seventy nine pages long, which is quite short by Hollywood standards. And um, 
was just riveting. I mean, incredible, incredible, incredible script. One of the best I'd ever read. And, and uh, the answer was definitely not, no way am I doing this movie, <laughs> specifically because it's impossible to shoot. And I just, I just had, I've been around long enough to know that you say yes to a movie like this, you're out there shooting, and, and then you find out on your fifth, fifth day of shooting that they're going to be doing some exteriors now. And that they're going to be doing, you know, they're going to betray the the, the, the film's main conceit, which oh, makes it unique. Right, right, right. Uh, so then I got a letter from this Spanish fellow named Rodrigo Cortez, uh, and he was to be the director. And it was about as long as the script, his letter. And the letter stated in no uncertain terms that the, that the, that the film would maintain all the integrity of the script, and then some. And uh, I, I've never heard of someone being so right I mean he just he nailed it he knew how to shoot it um, he found a way to do it where it was not only cinematically enjoyable but uh, but in, inventive and, and just something you've never seen before and, um, I was just so taken with his enthusiasm and passion and it was incredible I couldn't believe it when I saw it because like you I thought okay it'll be like phone booth it happens mostly in the phone booth yeah. He doesn't leave the phone booth for most of the movie, but there's other characters, there's things going on. Yeah. And I have to, when, when the screen comes up and it's dark and we hear like breathing and yeah. there's some scratching, I think. And, and then the first camera shot of you and it's sort of your nose and eyes kind of thing with yeah. the cell phone. And I thought, this is going to be all in the box. We're going for it. We're yeah. going for it. Yeah. yeah I, I, uh... Was there a moment that you might have thought, man, I don't know, maybe we should get out of the box or do a flashback, show the insurgents kidnapping me, something, anything? No. Never, no. I mean, I, I, I would never have wanted to do that. That would have spoiled everything, right. I think. Um, I, 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 I got that sense the first day. The film was shot chronologically, too, which is a rare treat because you, right. you never get an opportunity like that. It's usually out of order, and you're, you find yourself at home reading the entire script over again because you want to make sure you've left no stone unturned. And, uh, in this situation, I just got to really kind of go with it. And there was no rehearsal, no anything. We Nothing. Just, yeah. No. I don't think it's something you rehearse. It's just yeah. when you're in that kind of, you know, when you're going through all those stages of, you know, grief, panic, anger, surrender, acceptance, I mean, I just think you you got to kind of let yourself go for it the first time on camera. Right. Was this a tough one to, you know, get out of the box and leave at, in the box when you went home? Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm always never a fan of actors that kind of romanticize the yeah, process yeah. a little yeah, too yeah. much. But um, to be perfectly honest, I, I had a really tough time uh, keeping it together, <laughs> shooting the movie. Um, I was a little out of control when we were shooting, and it was, uh, it was a very tough shoot, for I think, for everybody. I mean, uh, uh, you know, you go home at the end of the day, and I mean, you spent the majority of the day in, in, a, in, a, in a heightened state of anxiety or panic, and there's no sleeping, there's no anything, you know, and... Um, a, a great example, I think, of that is shooting the film, and I'm doing these scenes where I'm screaming to get out of this, but right at the very end of the movie, and I'm yelling at Dan Brenner because I'm running out of time, and uh, the crew kept ripping the coffin apart because they thought I wasn't... I changed it each time. I, I would change. I would say different dialogue. I would have a little. I would, you know, the takes were much longer or much shorter the next. So there was no consistency for the crew to go by. So. And that, that day we happened to have this uh, a heightened sense of anxiety on set as well because it was toward the end and they had to close the coffin completely in order for me to do the last piece. So the paramedics were on set and it was just, everybody was on edge and I think it showed when we were in, in, in the actual process of shooting it. So, so the crew kept ripping off the top of the coffin and I kept, you know, 
you try not to get mad at them because they're doing it, at, at, you know, because they care. But none of them speak English. We're shooting the whole thing in Spain, and um, and uh, you know, I finally I said I have to have a safety word. Well, I was going to say, did you have a yeah, word where you, know, you know, the tortoise? And yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. On any other movie, my safety word would have been something hilarious, like you know, bolognese. <laughs> uh, but uh, but no, and this it was just cut. If I call cut, right. get me the hell out of there. Right. Yeah, yeah. Or if I fall silent, there's something even more. <laughs> Wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If I can't say the safety yeah, word, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you're shooting in Spain too. Uh, you're, you know, going back to like, you know, a hotel room afterwards. So there's no real comfort. You're, there's probably not a lot of comfort no. involved in this whole shoot. No. But I wonder if that feeds the performance, though. You know, I mean, it's awful probably yeah. be doing it. You yeah. know, for 17 days when the, yeah. for the shooting time. But I would imagine that. You know, the sort of the anxiety maybe of knowing that you got to go back and get in that box might have fed the performance yeah. in a way that maybe it wouldn't have. It had been a Hollywood movie, and it, you might have been able to go home afterwards. Or yeah, you know, I, I, in retrospect, I'm, I was thrilled that we shot in, in Barcelona, and I was thrilled that that um, well, the movie was a zero budget film, so I was, you know, I, I went there alone. There was no, you know, I didn't come with a, a like a you know a hair person or any of that crap. It's not like we needed any of that stuff anyway. So, um, so I was there totally alone, which, which actually really helped. Uh, but yeah, I mean, had I been in Los Angeles or New York, I just, I would have gone home and I would have, yeah. you know, seen the family and, and relaxed and let go. But here I, there was none of that. So yeah, you carry it with you the, each day. I think that's, that was kind of the, uh, the problem. I was suddenly that guy, you know, I was thinking when I was shooting, I'm, oh my God, I'm, I'm that guy. I, I can't let go of this. I'm going home. I'm, I'm pacing my apartment until the sun comes up so I can go back and do this again. I'm not even sleeping. I'm just, you know, so I was a bit of a wreck and I was really, really happy to, to be done. I mean, like a high school kid, I had a calendar in my hotel room. I was crossing off the wow. days, yeah. Wow. Well, I guess uh, no hair and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Maybe a cell phone wrangler is the only, is the only other person you need or flashlight yeah, really, yeah. handler or something. Yeah, like. you just have those those guys. And even then, it's an incredibly skeleton crew. There's yeah. very few people. You just, it's a, you know, maybe 12 people around the actual filming process. Did you find... And, and I know, you know, you said earlier about, you know, actors, you know, I was talking about, oh, I took it home with me. And it's sort of, you yeah, know, yeah, sometimes, yeah. you know, it, it, it can be sort of an uncomfortable conversation yeah. to have with someone who takes it a little bit too seriously. But I yeah. wonder if you, if you learn something about yourself and how quickly you can fall into a state, no matter how confident you are, and yeah. no matter sort of, you know, what your situation in life is, when things are turned upside down, how quickly everything can change for you. Yeah, yeah I think, I think, you know, that's, for everyone, that's evidenced in, 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 in different ways, mm -hmm. to different degrees. I mean, I, I think this film covers a situation that is, by and large, extraordinary. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, it, it's tough to say how you would... We're going to knock wood, knock wood on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, don't, I think it would be really difficult to gauge how, how one would react in there. I mean, I feel like, I feel like I, that was a pretty close representation of how I would right. behave in there. I think, um, you know, given given Paul Conroy's circumstances and the fact that he's not a superhero, he's not MacGyver, he's not any of that crap yeah. that's going to help him in the situation. I just I just really like that they instilled that in him. He's a working class guy. He's you and me. He's a guy that can you know that 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 is in deep shit right now, yeah. and 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 there's no way for him to figure this out in a in a way that you typically see in a film. So. Yeah. Uh, when I was watching this movie, uh, I was thinking about uh, the proposal, which came out late last year or last year was yeah. out recently last you know summer. romantic comedy uh, Green Lantern's coming up big 
you know, yeah. probably huge budget superhero thing. Yeah. And I was thinking years ago, a big movie star like you making those kind of films that make a lot of money and stuff probably wouldn't take on a project like this. Maybe, yeah. Be, yeah. Do you think? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I think times. I think that the, the business has changed yeah. in a way that a movie like this with someone working at your level probably uh-huh. wouldn't have been possible twenty years ago, or you might not have had someone. Maybe, like Yeah. I think. I think we're we're you know it's sort of the opposite for me. I mean, a movie's you know, movies like The Proposal and, you know, bigger budget movies like Green Lantern and stuff are just such a privilege to, to be able to work on movies like that. Um, but a movie like Buried is is indulgent to me like that. Yeah. That, yeah, when we live in such a, uh, an age where information and uh, it can be very explosive or, but we're dealing with so much information that if something, you know, like a movie about a guy in a coffin doesn't work, nobody knows, nobody cares, nobody, it doesn't matter, you know. Right. So and going into it, I wasn't expecting to be sitting here talking to you at the Toronto Film Festival. Right. Uh, to be honest, I, I didn't think people would see the movie. Right. I just, so, and it doesn't do your career any harm if no. nobody sees it. If people see it, though, they go, I think of him in a new way, maybe. Yeah, or 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 it's or it's one of those films that at worst it's an art house movie that you know uh, never caught on to the mainstream. At, at best, it explodes and people see something that really dares an audience to to you know to to experience something rather than just watch it. I mean, the film is a true experience. I think you feel it when you watch it, and that's a that's unusual to find find a movie like that, let alone see a studio release it. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you. Um, my experience of watching it was for the first 20 minutes, I wasn't sure whether I was going to be able to stay in the theater, yeah. honestly. <laughs> I was, I was, it was yeah. at a, a, a press screening here yeah. a few weeks ago. I live here, so I get to see stuff in advance, but it was packed, and I had to sit in the front row, oh, and I was sort of staring up at this, and it kind oh, of man, felt I, in I a darkened be, theater. Yeah. It, it kind of, it, it you know, I, I mean, it's obviously, you know, I had an exit plan, but, yeah. but I, <laughs> or was able to have an exit yeah, plan, yeah. but I found it really, really uncomfortable to watch for the first little while, for the first yeah. half an hour or so. Um, have you seen it with an audience, and what have uh, the reactions been? First of all, for the first 30 minutes in the coffin, I wanted to leave, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just yeah. FYI, but uh, I, I, yeah, the first time I saw the film was in Sundance, right. and um, I saw it with an audience for the first time, man, I was so nervous, and they... Uh, I, they took a breath at the beginning of the movie, and I think that was the last one they took until the end. And it was, I'd never said, been a part of a movie like that where the entire audience was leaning forward at a 45 degree angle, staring up at the screen at the edge of their seat. And it was just, I, I kept, you know, Rodrigo kept punching me in the arm when we were when we were watching it, and he was, you know, because he he felt it as well, and it was kind of an amazing experience, particularly for him because he had the most to lose. You know, and he was a guy who was really risking something by doing a movie like this. So um, it was, I mean, it was just incredible. When they got out of the theater, too, there was such a, an active discussion and dialogue as well. And it was, I don't know, it was a pretty nice, it was a great feeling, I got to say. Yeah, I walked a little faster than usual out of that theater. Yeah, I yeah. think I was kind of just happy to be out of there. And it's yeah. not a reflection of the film. Well, I guess it is a reflection of the film. Sure. But it's, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's a movie that I think is bound to, to raise things in people that maybe yeah. you don't experience you know, when you go see the Green Lantern or something yeah, like that, right? Absolutely. You know? I mean, it's as it's visceral as it gets, film, and yeah. it yeah, it gets in you, it gets in your in your cells a little bit, and it's and but I think that's what moviegoers are looking for an experience rather than just the same old stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, this is a this is a thriller that is both a narrative challenge and a technical challenge, and those two are intrinsically linked, and that's what I think makes it very special that it was executed um, so well by Rodrigo. I, I just I have such admiration for that guy. I, I'd follow him into battle anyway. <laughs> well, for me, the the uh, 
scariest or sort of most intense parts weren't when the cell phone was up at your face yeah. or anything. It was when the, the screen would go dark for, and it doesn't go yeah. dark for long periods of time, yeah. but it goes dark every now and again. And for me, that was the scariest part because then yeah. you're imagining yeah. what's going on. Yeah, a lot of that's my bad lighting, though. Because I, 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 this is the first film where I had to light myself. So it right. was, it was uh, you can imagine, it was uh, shooting was, was difficult. I'm thinking of 10 different things at once, and I have to keep myself lit in the se- sequence. Right. So... Um, the only takes, we, we usually just did one take of something, which yeah. is a real luxury, but uh, sometimes we had to go back because I just didn't, I didn't bounce the light off the right side. You couldn't see a thing. It was, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And was it just a regular cell phone or was it, I mean, just a technical question, like was sure. the light a little brighter or was it a little... We had several cell phones. Yeah. One, one was just really, was like actually a flashlight. It was LEDs inside and uh, um, or as the Spanish call them, LEDs. But uh, yeah, they, 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 yeah, that that really lit up the the whole thing. But then when I was looking at the phone, and you'd see me over the shoulder, that was a real phone. Yeah. yeah. That was Ryan Reynolds talking about the movie Buried. If you haven't seen it, if you're claustrophobic, maybe keep it that way. But if you want to see him stretch, do something different, flex different muscles other than the prodigious ab muscles that he so often has on display, go see Buried. Touched with Fire, I told you about Katie Holmes, Luke Kirby starring as people with bipolar disorder in a film by Paul Dalio. I can't stress to you enough how interesting this next, I'm going to call it an interview, but I'm putting quotation marks around the interview part. Uh, I, I want you to pay close attention to this because I don't think you've ever heard a story quite like this one. The sound quality is not great. He was in Chicago being routed through a publicist who was in Los Angeles, and I was, of course, here at the House of Krauss. I apologize for the sound quality, but I think the story is so compelling that you're going to want to listen to it anyway. Here's Paul Dalio. Congratulations on the film. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's terrific. It gave me, I think, a window into a world that I don't know much about. So I'd like to go back to uh, the very beginning of all of this. In fact, a, a little bit even further than the very beginnings of this film. Can you describe to me what your life was like for the four years before you went to uh, New York University and enrolled in the film course? Uh, well, uh, actually, it's interesting. I, I was just... It was just during my years, uh, my undergrad years, when I was in the dramatic writing program at NYU, uh, when I was about, you know, 21, 22, uh, that I, I started to break into uh, the hypomanic state when I was experimenting with marijuana uh, while writing. Um, and I found it to be a big creative catalyst. Uh, I didn't know at the time that uh, if you have the bipolar gene and you smoke marijuana, it actually pushes your mind into a hypomanic state and makes you temporarily more creative with a quicker mind. And uh, at first, uh, it was thrilling. It got to the point where uh, my fingers couldn't keep up with my mind and I had to use a voice recorder. And then my thoughts started overlapping and my mind couldn't keep up with my uh, thoughts, and I ha- and I would go for these runs with the voice recorder to try to to try to speed my mind up to keep up with these overlapping thoughts. And for a while, uh, you know, my professors, you know, started to really praise my work. You know, saying it was brilliant, which they never did before. And 
and I felt like, oh, I was tapping into some kind of divine illumination. Uh, and I started to think that I was experiencing, you know, God, like visions from God. And as I would sleep four hours a night, and uh, and I started uh, uh, getting higher and higher, and eventually it was time to graduate. And uh, I didn't have a job, so I had to move in with my parents. Uh, and it was at that time that I had been doing documentary footage for my brother's foundation during my spring break, so I would go to China. And he had a foundation that took uh, uh, handicapped Chinese orphans and bring them into, brought them into American families. I had like 300 hours of footage. And uh, I ran into a producer, a TV producer, who, who had offered to uh, help me uh, turn that into a feature documentary. And so I kind of locked myself in my parents' house and just you know, did what he told me, which is to go through 300 hours of footage and choose 300 still frames and post them on a board that would tell the story. And I was smoking and working and smoking and working. And then my mind started going through a downward spiral. And I started to have, like, uh, you know, delusions as, as the creativity that first surfaced with these illuminating thoughts took the form of a demon that was inside of me that I felt like was possessing me, you know, laughing at me and my mistakes. And I, I would, I would, I started trying to reawaken my senses, taking freezing cold showers to, and doing these deep meditations to try to alert and open the senses that were starting to die. And I would start collapsing in these, in these naps on the floor uh, at, at like three in the afternoon, uh, not able to sustain this four hour hour night sleep schedule, you know, and I just I felt like, you know, I was I was failing this this mission from God, as you know these these papers with deformed orphan faces printed scattered all over the floor. You know, were just building around me, uh, and I felt like I was. Uh, you know, I felt like the the weight of of all of their pain. You know, and all the the horrible conditions they were living in. You know, kind of on my shoulders. Uh, I started to feel like I was like I was being punished by God, and as, and it started to take the form of, of delusions. I thought there was like a demon in me, and I I went to a uh, shamanistic. Uh, kind of doctor, you know, and and was asking, you know, what I should do, and he would say, you know, to fast, you know, go on these fasts, and so I, I eventually got to a place where my brain just stopped working. It, it just it just kind of shut down, and and I couldn't um, I couldn't communicate with people, like I couldn't hear what they were saying, like I couldn't hold sentences, uh, and I would have to pretend that I that I knew what they were saying, and. And so eventually I was taken off the project. My, my, my parents got really concerned, and they told me just that I had to heal um, and just live a healthy lifestyle until I healed. And eventually I did heal, um, but, and then eventually I started to feel really sharp, you know, sharper than I've ever felt, more energized than I've ever felt. And I was desperate to get out of my parents' house and get a job, so, so I started uh, writing these spec scripts, these TV spec scripts, uh, to try to submit to, to writers and to producers to you know, get some kind of job in Hollywood that could <clears throat> launch me on some kind of career path. So 
I eventually landed a job with uh, a producer out in Hollywood. Um, and I got out to Hollywood, and I uh, was sitting in the hotel at the Standard Hotel. And I remember the moment, the exact second I went manic, I first went crazy. Uh, I was <clears throat> sitting there, and I, I, I did something which I knew I shouldn't have done that I hadn't done in a while, which was to light up a joint. And you after a couple of inhales with like one long drag, suddenly a thunderbolt to my brain just struck and lit up my mind. And I looked around, my eyes widened, I looked around and, and all man-made meaning to every object around me vanished. And and layers and layers of these timeless mythic meanings that reoccur in every mythology and religious text and poem just started flooding in, uh, pulsing in, in every single object around me. And I thought I was experiencing a vision, a vision from God. I was sure of it because it just struck me like a lightning bolt and everything around me was so mythic and loaded with, with meaning. And so I, I ran outside uh, you know, my eyes darting around uh, from image to image, just interweaving their meanings until they all kind of intertwined into this elaborate story um, that that was that was that was wrapped around this this vision of God and this this elaborate this elaborate uh, almost tapestry that that was that was laid out across the street and across the buildings. And suddenly the, the, the vision became really dark, you know. It, it was like I saw uh, all the horrors of the world in these extreme states. So, you know, for instance, like I would see a rea reality TV show on a billboard and it would look like uh, all these horrors that were dressed up like angels, you know. And I would see one with uh, gangsters that were dressed up like demons. A uh, reality TV show about gangsters dressed up as demons, and I would see um, a video game uh, with these soldiers going to war in Iraq for oil that they were, you know, giving out to these kids. And I would, and then I would look around the other corner, and I'd see these gasoline pumps, and you know, in the cars. And then I'd look in the other corner, and I'd see uh, an advertisement for uh, a movie that was. Uh, teaching kids how to drive cars even more fast and more furious than before, you know. And and and, and, it, and, and I'd look up at the at the at the sky, and there'd be this giant billboard with a with an apocalyptic eclipse of, a, of like a, a orange and yellow sun and moon overlapping with the words Mastercard beneath it. And I and I felt like like. There was someone who was creating that image, who was rubbing in the people's faces that they were the master, uh, to the, and, and, and all the people who, who bought their cards were their slaves. And it just, it just all, all of it connected in this horrific image that I felt was a vision from God. And it was something real that I was experiencing, but I started to take it literally, even though it was, it was like a metaphorical truth. And that was, that was the thing is... Eventually, I thought, I was like, there must be people who see this vision. I can't be the only one struck by this vision. There must be other people who are planning this, who are behind the scenes, who are orchestrating this thing. And, and, I, and I, like, 
suddenly thought they were orchestrating an apocalypse because this kind of gluttony can't sustain, this kind of greed and, and decadence and, and out of alignment with nature uh, has to, to fall and, and, and die and be reborn into something pure. And that's what these people are doing in the, in the vision of God. And so suddenly, like, I, I had a delusion that they thought I was the Antichrist and I was supposed to, and, and that's why the producer brought me out here because I was going to be the Antichrist who was going to, you know, kill off this vision, uh, this, this whole uh, distorted uh, uh, state of humanity so that there could be one reborn. And I was in the, I was in the, Standard Hotel lobby when I saw this glass case that was actually used to put cute girls in to kind of just hang out, well, which was, to me was represented the peak of, of kind of uh, sexual gluttonous, you know, uh, state of society. And, and, and in that moment of panic, I saw two glasses and a bottle of champagne and I was and I was terrified, and I, I had a vision of them thinking that I was the Antichrist, and that they would, that the, all the angels in the reality show uh, would be killed off by all the demons in the in the gangster reality show, and that there would be one angel who would be who, who would be the winning contestant angel, and she would be put in there, and then they would force me to to sleep with her, and they would kill me. And they would uh, drink my blood, and then come, you know, come to, to to a state where where she would give birth to the new Christ figure, and I would be, you know, uh, 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 the the death of the old, and and my child would be the rebirth of the new through her womb. I mean, just completely crazy. So I picked up a a, a steel case and threw it at this glass case, and I was kind of completely shocked and 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 I told the guy at the front desk I'm sorry I have to do this but they tackled me to the ground and they put me in a in a in what was ranked one of the 10 worst correctional facilities in uh in the United States the two towers uh where all kinds of abuse happened and it was and, and I realized they gave me an assault charge they said they told me that I assaulted this guy when I was just terrified and I threw this glass case and so uh, I, I, you know, I mean, I realized, you know, that they were going to put me in there for like six months. And, you know, I realized now looking back that there's a lot of people in there who are being blamed for being criminals when they're just in a, in a, in a state of panic because of their psychosis. And, um, and then uh, uh, I came out, you know, I finally went to the hospital for two months. I, I come down. And I'm told I have this lifelong illness and that I wasn't experiencing divine illumination. I, I have a condition called bipolar, and uh, I will uh, probably uh, kill myself and, and fall into the one in four suicide statistic if I don't take my medication uh, because this, this, this thing will progress and that if I take my medication, I'll be able to live a reasonably normal life. Uh, but the medications made me feel no emotion. So, you know, I step out into this into into the world with my whole sense of identity shattered, uh, thinking I'm some genetic defect and that I 
not knowing who I am anymore, knowing I wouldn't be the same person I used to be, uh, feeling like, no, there was nothing uh, redeeming or illuminating that I was experiencing. Um, and and uh, it, it kind of shatters your whole life, your whole self-perception. And then I came across the book, Touch with Fire, um, and it changed everything. You know, all of a sudden... Uh, it validated the few moments where I thought, wow, there is something illuminating about this. There is something beautiful about this. Um, uh, and I became like Marco, you know, I, I romanticized it. And, um, and I went to uh, these rap clubs, you know, because I didn't know at the time that when you, <clears throat> when I was in the hospital, I was rhyming compulsively. Because uh, I didn't know manic symptoms at the time. All the, all the patients were were rhyming, speaking in rhyme, just unconsciously. And when I left, uh, it was kind of the only creative outlet uh, I had that would kind of purge this poison in my veins. So, you know, write these really dark, twisted raps, and then I would go to these rap battles, and I would kind of flaunt my lunacy uh, under the name Luna, kind of wearing the the mask of every stereotype ever assigned to a lunatic, uh, kind of playing out a, a caricature of all the, of all the, uh, the, the labels that people would give me as, as the psychotic and the, you know, um, and that was my way of dealing with it, of, of kind of having pride with it. But in that world, I was embraced, which was great. I mean, because in that world, you're, you're basically you know, using rhymes to compete to see who can be more crazy in in their violent attacks against each other. And so uh, I'm bonding with these people who think that my crazy rhymes and my insanity is, is, a, is, is a quality. And there are also people who who brought redemption to the pain, you know, who wore their suffering like a badge and who who, you know, kind of laughed at the happy people. And I couldn't be around happy people because they depressed me because uh, I couldn't be happy. And, and they didn't want to be around me because I was depressed and would be around. And so for a while, I, uh, I would smoke weed with these rappers, and I just I romanticized the, the condition. Uh, and, you know, it made me go into another mania and um, made me crash again. And... It was actually then that I uh, applied to NYU when I was in the middle of the of the manic state. I went into orientation week, and the mania started rising. Um, and I was actually spreading, sending uh, text messages with uh, raps about Spike Lee being in the Illuminati, <laughs> not knowing that, like, you know, years later, he would, he would end up executive producer. Uh, something related to this, you know, and um, and so eventually, you know, I, in the second suicidal depression, it, it, it kind of was the breaking point where I just kind of had to stop. And when it was, uh, I was working at that um, that warehouse. Um, you know, I, during the depression, I got a job at the warehouse because it you you don't really have the mental function to get like a high functioning job, but the the warehouse kind of kept my mind off the suicide. You know, it was like a meditation of like you know you just drill and you saw and you 
and it keeps your mind off of, you know, uh, the suicide that can just kind of fester if you're lying in a bed at home. And so uh, one day I was sawing a piece of wood, and I was just thinking to myself over and over again, it's not going to get better than this. It's never going to get better than this. And, and the more I said it, the more I fantasized about my hands moving closer and closer to the saw, knowing that if I just pushed it a little bit closer, it would all be over. And, and none of this would be, uh, it would all be gone. And, 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 and I, I, at the very least, leave this life, and who knows what lies beyond. And uh, I stopped, and I walked outside, and I, I uh, called my father, and, I, and I, I tried to convince him to let me go. And I, was, I, I said, look, I, I've made my decision. Uh, I'm just saying goodbye. You can't convince me. And I was, you know, you, you, should, you, you should know that if you knew what I was going through, you wouldn't want me to live. You know, you'll be fine. You'll get over it eventually. And my my dad in my panic just, you know, came running to my work. And, uh, you know, the look on his face, the terror, the, the torment kind of imprinted in my brain. And coming out of the depression, it just it lingered in my brain. I, and I just, it, it was, I just couldn't put him through that anymore. I couldn't put my family through that anymore. So I just had to resign to living uh, numb on medication and just getting by. Uh, but then uh, one day when, when I was with my doctor, my doctor told me, uh, you know, you'll get through this. And I was like, look, if you can introduce me to one person who's happy and creative and stable uh, on the medication, you'll give me some hope and I'll believe you and I'll be able to, I'll have something to fight for. But right now there's no one, you know, and, and he couldn't produce anybody, but he, he happened to be friends with Kay Jameson and he knew how much of a hero she was to me. So he said, look, let me, let me see if I can arrange a meeting and you can talk to her. And I remember at the time I, I was reading uh, her book, Exuberance, and I couldn't believe she could write this book on medication that captured exuberance. And when I met her, she said, you, you, you know, I asked her about the book. I was like, how could you write this? I mean, and she said that, that, that she, she experienced exuberance all the time and, and that I absolutely will if I'm patient. And she also said that she doesn't know one artist who's not more creative after bipolar than before bipolar as long as they're on the meds. Uh, and... Uh, it, I mean, it just changed everything. It gave me hope. I had something to fight for then, and I, I had the hope that I could, you know, I could. It was a revelation of like, wait a second, I could be more creative after bipolar than before bipolar. As long as I'm on the meds, that means that this can be a gift. This can be something redeeming. That I can come out of this uh, uh, where all this horror and pain was worth it. Like that there was there was something that I could I could get out of this that was better than sanity, you know? Better than just never having been bipolar. And, you know, then I reapplied to film school, um, and they they let me in, thank God. And um, and that's where I met my wife. And um, 
I was numb throughout uh, pretty much all of film school, so I, my my uh, work wasn't that great. It was pretty uh, poor, but but I did have uh, a rap musical that I wrote when I was in the the swings of mania and depression, and it was that that kind of really got Spike. Um, Spike really believed in me. I mean, when he read that and he. He did watch my films, and, and he does, uh, you know, mentor certain students and executive producers their films. Um, but uh, when it came time to to do uh, my first feature, it was like at the you know it was the three years later, the last day, and I, I was I was going to do something very safe, which was like this what I thought was uh, a commercially successful film. Uh, it was like a Russian mafia film, you know, that was a cross between The Lion King, The Godfather, and Hamlet. <laughs> and and, I, and and he's like, look, I've seen this film a million times. Uh, don't do it. Do the rap musical. If you do the rap musical, I'll executive produce it. And and so I was like, great, you know. And so we started getting to work on the rap musical. But uh, <clears throat> my wife was pushing me to do uh, this one. And because... This one was an idea that kind of came about casually uh, when we were in Bulgaria, and she was doing her first film, and she was kind of struggling with what she was going to do. And she said, "You know, give me, give me a, an idea for a crazy love story." And I said, two, two bipolar people meet in the hospital and make each other crazy." And she and she stopped and she was like, "Wait a second, no, that's." You have to do that movie. You have to do that. That's your that's your story. And so I kind of just forgot about it and kind of you know you know blew it off and moved on. But she kept reminding me about it. And in the middle of working on uh, the rap musical, she was like, "Look, you know, I really think you should do this film. It's it's way more personal. It, it, it has to do much more with with where you're at now as opposed to where you were when you were." Lost in the mania and the depression, um, you know, it has something that you can that you can the people will be able to take out of that where where they where you got out of the darkness and and um, you know you you've got to listen to the wife <laughs> you know so she knew you know she knew me better than I knew myself and and so I listened to her and I I wrote the script and I presented it to Spike and I said hey. You know, uh, what do you think of this one? Uh, do you think we could do this one instead? And Spike believed in it and got behind it. And um, and then, yeah, my wife came on as the cinematographer and the producer, and Spike <clears throat> was the executive producer. Um, and yeah, that's what led to it. That is an absolutely extraordinary story. And I, I wonder, I, and we're, we're almost at a time here for this, but I wonder how that story, when it is so vivid to you, how did you take all of that and kind of distill it down into the story that we see? Because it's not your story, but it has to be personal for you in some way. Yeah, the, the film was a, kind of a metaphor for my story in that, uh, it was my struggle to come to terms with all this beauty that I found in this in this thing, and all this horror that I found in this thing, and 
and how do you reconcile that? And, and, and it took the form of these two lovers who each represented a different aspect of it. And as these two lovers pursue their love, uh, and it goes back and forth between agony and ecstasy, um, they have to reconcile it. They have to come to terms with it. And so it was, it was like a process of an internal wrestling with, with my own internal experience of, of letting it go and, 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 um, and it kind of manifests through these two characters who had to let it go. Touched by Fire won't be playing at a theater near you, not right away anyway. Uh, it's opening slowly across the country, so have a look at your local newspapers and online for uh, play dates near you because I think you'll probably want to check out this film. Paul was one of the most interesting people I've talked to in a very long time. Uh, my thanks to everybody who's out there listening. My thanks to Ryan Reynolds. My thanks to Paul Dalio. Be sure to come by next Monday. We put a new show up every single week. Who else does that? Well, a lot of people do, but our shows are interesting, and you never know who's going to stop by for a visit.